Welcome to the Carry On Podcast with Carrie Lloyd. Carrie is an internationally known speaker, teacher, and pastor, and author of two books, The Virgin Monologues and Prude. She's also written for countless blogs and magazines and shares her message of faith, love, and noble living. So we're going to learn all about you today. Oh, good. Things, things we did a, um, so if you wonder where the questions came from, we did a national survey. <laughs> and we it down to the top 10 questions that the, the United States would like to know. We couldn't afford to go to Britain. So um, we, have a, we have quite a budget. When you say so, national, do you mean about five people? Um, I, I think it was me and my dog. Oh, that's, well, it's intimate, so, intimate and small and close. Yes, yeah, so, all right, so let's be honest. This is stuff I want to know. Okay. But I, I, but I do believe that there are other people who have these same questions. So we'll, we'll, try, and, we'll try and trudge on as we can. <laughs> so the first question in this um, Get to Know Carrie segment is, so you, people who are familiar with the testimony know there's been a lot of stops and starts to your faith. Mm. How, would you, how would you judge your faith now? versus what it was growing up in a Christian household? Oh, gosh. Well, as I was growing up in a Christian household, I um, you know, I was raised by two Baptist ministers, and um, they were wonderful parents, and I adored them immensely. I was an only child, so I was around adults and faith-led people a lot of my childhood. But um, I kind of brought myself up with a sort of very Old Testament, very religious, very legalistic um, relationship that certainly wasn't put on by my parents, but... It was something that I sort of learned myself, if that made sense. I had this wild imagination and thought that if I said the word bum, I would be going straight to hell. So I had this sort of bizarre kind of um, fear of the Lord, but not in a good way um, when I was younger. And so, of course, when it came to trials and tribulations, as I got older and my, you know, my father passed when I was 23 and um, then a consecutive few other family members and friends died. I didn't have the kind of intimate relationship with God or nor an understanding of a good God by that point. And I held on religiously, quite literally, for about two years after my father died. And then by the time I was about 25, I was doing everything to just get rid of my faith completely. And became a very sort of staunch atheist, really. Um, and I was the one that would argue you in a bar um, under the table in regards to the non-existence of God and... Um, so these days, the irony is that I'm, you know, I'm now a pastor and more aware than ever before that intimacy um, is a very deep and personal relationship with a God that is a father and um, seeks very much for the goodness of his children. And um, that doesn't mean to say that I, I get to be childlike and immature in that in that journey. It actually gives me a greater, stronger sense of ownership, I would say, um, and a, a, a stronger sense of identity in who I am these days. So the, the relationships change completely. I would say it's my oxygen these days, but before I could compartmentalize my faith and say that I, I was a Christian, but actually I was really just popping to church on a Sunday and felt a little bit better about myself after the service, you know? It was, it's funny, I was talking to a pastor one time and he said that he admired me because I had this gutter to God testimony because I actually <laughs> had reference points. And when I, re- I could relate to people better than he could because he grew up in a Christian household, went to a Christian college, went to seminary, and then went straight to church. So he, he felt like he didn't have the impact on people that he, he that somebody like me or yeah. you especially yeah. has been through. So in, in this point in your life, what do you think your experiences have best lent you towards adding experiential, I don't want to say training, but at least advice 
to the many students you have working with you right now. I mean, what, what, what one thing in your life do you draw upon more often than not when you want to share maybe with a struggling or seeking Christian, you know, what it's, what it's like to let God truly take over your life? I think, I mean, I think as a pastor, you know, my, my main job is to love and guide people well. And so when I'm not doing that, I have to look at myself and reflect on what's going on with my, with my own journey and my character. I mean, essentially everything functions out of fear or love. And um, I think if we're not careful, we want to get those that we're pastoring and guiding in our journey to get to a certain point. And of course, I have people in my life that are sort of surrendered to the experiment, if that makes sense, for nine months. And if they're all in, I can see transformation in these people like, like you wouldn't believe, whether it's people literally on the, on the edge of divorce or, or whether they've gone through huge amounts of grief and tragedy and just found themselves in a place of never being able to trust anyone again. Um, often they get to us at that point. So, you know, Bethel is seen as a kind of refuge and, and a place of healing, um, but it certainly looks different for everyone. So if we have any kind of formula or we think we've cracked a formula, we're in a, we're in a really dangerous zone. Um, so I have to guide with the spirit on every person that I pass through in a very different way. Um, and my, my biggest journey is to make sure that I actually see that person for how the Lord sees them, not how I see them with my own fractions and my own fear, if that makes sense. Who is the person that's had the biggest impact on your life? Ooh. Oh gosh, I would probably say my mother and father, and that kind of goes without saying, doesn't it really? Um, but I, I would say these days I've got probably a committee of people um, in different elements that that speak into my life on a, on a way that I've I've never really I've never really had it, been in a culture of confrontation as I have in the last six years. So I think by the time we get into confrontation in England, we don't actually, we're, we're livid and mad with each other by that point. But when I get into a culture like this that confronts for the, for the sake of your own best version, if that makes sense, it comes with a sort of sense of um, gentleness and kindness and tenderness. And those people have probably impacted me the most because they've, they've not confronted me for their own needs. They've confronted me from, for my needs into bettering myself as a person. Um, and so I would say Gay Valenzuela, who's the head of second year. He's my boss, but he's also, I interned for him when I was in my third year here. And probably Bill Johnson, I would say, who um, has just been a, a great covering and, um, and a very wise soul for me to go to. Probably the wise, wisest and probably one of the most Christ-like people I know. So if people follow your journey, they, you've gone through a lot of different things in your life. You know, Growing up in the household, you did. You went through the death of your father. You kind of spun off the rails for a while, became an atheist, came back to the faith. Is there any part of that journey that you would rather have not lived through or does all that made up who you are today? I think, you know what, for as much as people go, you know, what a great story <laughs> of redemption and restoration. I'm like, none of that really needed to happen in order for me to have got to this place now. But that's just how the journey was. And that was, I mean, the beauty of faith in God, I think, is the fact that we get to have free will. So, you know, my journey was really, it was a, it was a tangent. I was very much trying to take reins of my own life all the time. And that was, that was part of the problem. I was just very stubborn and pretty prideful. And I wanted to have it my way all the time. Um, and uh, I just, it was this constant yearning to try and get my needs met. And whether that looked like being addicted to stuff or 
um, whether I had an eating disorder or whether I was codependent with men or all of those things were really just a cry out for help in a, in a place that I didn't know how to process pain properly. So in, instead, I just reacted to that all the way through my 20s. And I think if I'd learned how to process pain better, if I'd learned what God was really meant to represent, not the God that I'd brought myself up on, um, then I think... I think my life would have been very different. And I, I generally don't feel like... I think those things that have gone through have just really shown the goodness of God and actually all things can be made good. But I don't, I don't think they needed to happen that way to make my life any more impactful, if that makes sense. So if you could define yourself with one adjective, what would you use? What about two? Because I really would like to use two... <laughs> I actually remember I have someone I go and see a sort of uh, a therapist a couple of times um, a month because obviously I'm counseling a lot of people myself and she asked me the same question and I actually said I'm beautifully complex I think was the best way for me to describe it <laughs> one in like super goofy to very deep and thinks far too much and um uh, yeah, and I, I, I just um, and I look around at people around me as well, and they're all kind of the same, sort of highly, highly um, hilarious and deeply, deeply deep. All right, so I have some fun questions for you too. We'll get back to a little more serious stuff, but okay. we're trying to get to know the the fun side of you too. The so goofy. I have, so I have very, very less than serious questions for you. Okay. And some of them, some of them are very short. Okay. <laughs> all right. So. Coffee or tea? Oh gosh, I like. Tea. I probably would say coffee these days. That's so non-Brit of you. I know, I know. That's that's the problem with America. It changes you. What do What do you think is the greatest misnomer that Americans have about Brits? Um, that we don't care. <laughs> about what? About anything. <laughs> I think sometimes we come across as pretty rude, which I would understand. If you go through Heathrow, Heathrow arrivals and you see everyone at the gate, you're like, who died? Who died? And someone's clearly died as I've just arrived into Heathrow. Everyone looks miserable. But I think um, that's partly our kind of um, demeanor. Um, have, you, have you ever met any American that had a good British accent? No, they all sound like Dick Van Dyke. Actually, do you know what? Do you know what? I actually, I actually had this. I was at the actor's studio a few months ago, just watching a couple of scenes take place, and everyone kind of folds for the for the day. And some actor comes up to me, and he recognises that I'm start talking. I start talking in an English accent, obviously, and he starts talking like this, as if he was a governor from South East London. And I was like, I'm not. Again, I'm not Dick Van Dyke. I don't know where you got this. And then he turns around to me. He goes, That's my dad. And I went, what? <laughs> and I've been making this joke for such a long time. And I was like, how have I found the person who is the son of Dick Van Dyke? And that, that I've just made that. So this is why I never well, say let, let bad me, things about people. He literally was a son. And I didn't believe him. And then he got his phone out and started showing me home videos of Dick Van Dyke dancing in the, in the garden a few months before. And I'm like, oh, he really is your dad. I didn't realize. I think he's. He's got to be self-aware enough to know, though, that 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 accent his father used in Mary Poppins is viewed as the worst. (laughs) Well, here's the deal. He was definitely. It was probably very Mary Poppins. I think it was very like. I don't know. It 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 fitted at the time. 
for being a chimney sweep in southeast London. But that's what everyone thinks we sound like. Or they go very nasal and tinny in their attempts. <laughs> so you, you're, at, um, you're at Bethel, yes. which has a lot of tremendous teachers. Oh, they do. But also has probably more talented musicians and singers than probably the top 10 place in the United States for yeah. the Christian side of things. So I have to ask you the question, do you sing? Oh, no, darling. That would just... I, I would... Any kind of anointing that was happening in the room that moment, I'd break it instantly with my singing. So I, I sing in tune, <laughs> but I'm probably the volume of a little mouse. So that's, that's where I stop there, I would say. Um, Amanda thinks I have a good voice. Amanda Cook, who's one of our worship leaders here and, and brilliant songwriter, musician... Um, and one, she, she, she seems to like my voice, but I, it's definitely not going to be on this podcast anytime soon. All right. Just thought, I, thought I'd ask us if you're one of those people who think, you know, sit in the front row so nobody can hear you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what, what does Carrie Lloyd want to be when she grows up? Um, a ballerina. No, I, um, I feel like. Or a fireman. I know. I think I still love to write. I still think that's one of my favorite. I don't think that's ever going to leave my life. The joy of writing, the electricity I feel when I've got the perfect sentence. Or I've, I, I was quoted, the, I was speaking the other night and I, I said something like, I have the, I, you know, let's face it, ladies, I had the backbone of a chocolate eclair. And I'm like, I miss those moments where I get to quote things and write them down. So um, I'm writing... The, uh, the, the dream would be a lovely little cottage somewhere in, in, uh, in the countryside with a typewriter and um, just glorious California weather. That would, be, that would be my dream. So your writing is the thing you enjoy the most? I think so. And speaking, obviously, and teaching, I love pastoring. I do love kind of navigating, finding breakthrough for each person that I meet. So it all kind of ties in together. It's always a sort of nice circle of... of you know, it's sort of if I don't if I don't have experience, if I don't experience stories or people, or um, I get to learn stories on a day to day basis, that I have nothing really to explore and wonder and ponder upon in regards to people and what the Lord's doing in people's lives at the moment. So it kind of all adds up. If I don't pastor and I don't teach and I don't have people to interact with, then I have nothing to write about. I know you have a wide range of people that you pastor from an age standpoint, but I would imagine the vast majority are millennials do you think they get a bad rap yeah i do actually i do um i think i think to be honest i mean the oldest student i ever had was 72 and um he was absolutely one of my favorites because he was the most encouraging celebratory guy i'd ever met and everyone loved him um could never say boo to a goose never found the flaws in anyone was so so kind of healed and fulfilled that he never needed anything from anyone, which it was just a really astounding person. But then looking at the millennials that I have in my group, um, their brains are literally wired differently because they've just been brought up in different technology. So there are, there are science-proven um, experiments that are showing that actually, you know, when they're on the phone and they're talking to you and they're doing different things at the same time, you know, older generations go, they can't focus and they, they multitask, but they don't get anything. They're not effective with it. Well, actually, their brains are trained to be able to 
be um, good at multitasking. Um, this ideal that they want to achieve within the first five months of being in a corporation, they want to make an impact. I think that's probably the area that they need to work on the most, which is uh, character comes with perseverance and patience. And um, I'm all for people making an impact and changing the world, but they actually need to have a message behind it and experience behind it in order to start doing that. Um, so I think I think there's a there's some great blessings and beautiful um ambitious um characters in the millennials um the key is they all have a thousand dreams and the problem is they don't know which one to start with so that's my biggest one that I normally go through in pastoring my students is so which dream do we start off with and they're like well that's a problem I don't know and they can almost get paralyzed with their own dreams so most of my journey with them is actually just trying to figure out a structure and a place with the Lord and what's where do they feel the affection of God on those particular dreams and then start from there. So you've written two books, The Virgin Monologues and Prue. Yeah. Do you think people feel like they know who you are based on those two books? And I'm going to I'm going to actually throw a subtext on this too. Okay. I think people are more aware of your books than they are of the content. So right. do, you, do you ever get judged just based on the title of your books when people really haven't read them and understand them? Oh, yeah. I mean, gosh, I've, I've even spoken to leaders of churches saying, you know, just before I was actually publishing the first one, I remember going to some really, you know, really great speakers and I'd spoken to them afterwards and I said, I'd love to interview you for a book that I'm writing called The Virgin Monologues. And they said, no, I, I don't feel comfortable with that. And I went, and I was kind of like, why? And they said, well, I'm worried that it would put shame on people that have already had sex. And I'm like, oh, so we've already made a decision. And this is a book on a girl that has never had sex before, rather than a girl that's saying, um, there's no need to be carrying shame with this. And there's always chance to sort of change your mind and turn, turn the clock into a different way of living. Um, so I think a lot of assumptions are made. I think there are times where um, there are certain angles. I mean, everyone reads your writing and your books with their own lens and their own perspective. So it's amazing even just from writing articles, people misconstrue something that I've said or, or change it around to meet their own need to be antagonistic, if that makes sense. One of the main things with the Virgin Monologues, for example, was that they all believed that I was all about the guys allowing them to pursue us and that we shouldn't pursue a man and I was like well that no I don't actually believe that I I just know that for me being a post-codependent it didn't work out for me to try and manipulate and pursue men so I had to wait for a sort of side heads up but yeah kind of sometimes we can people can make sort of blanket statements and make very big conclusions which I'm actually more in a gray area than I am black and white um but I'm trying to give myself a lot of grace that you know they were the first two books I've ever written and I would say that it might look like I'm sort of obsessed with dating and relationships, but actually there's a whole plethora of subjects, which is one of the reasons why we're doing this podcast, really, is to actually open up a much bigger, a wider range of subjects to talk about. It's not just about loving each other in, in dating and in community. This is now about loving people in general and, um, and enjoying people before we miss the point completely. So I'm sure you've had ideas running through your head, as you always do, but... What's your next book going to be about? What do you think it's going to be about? I, I think one of my things that I'm, I'm seeing more and more in, the day is, in this day and age is this ability to self-sacrifice, this ability to put someone ahead of ourselves. 
And I don't mean to go on the basis of we lose ourselves completely and we become codependent nightmares. I'm not suggesting that. It's more actually the art of nobility and decency. So what does it look like when, if we actually brought back the importance of being noble back into this generation, how would we change and what difference would it make? And I think my, my, my journey, I was talking this, about this to a few, few of my bosses at Bethel about we just really have lost the art. I never hear anyone describe someone as being noble. You always hear someone talk about someone being kind or being very generous, but there is something in nobility that I think requires a huge amount of character, huge amount of perseverance, and an awful lot of self-sacrifice. And I was even asking people the other day on Facebook about, you know, what's your... If I gave you the word noble, who comes to mind? And it seemed to be all these people in in sort of social justice, anti-sex trafficking, anti-slavery movements. Um, So I think I'm probably going to be looking more at people that are noble or have been famed for being noble. And what can we do in our own personal journeys to be more noble in this generation? So do you consider yourself... A Christian author or an author who just happens to be Christian? Um, depends on the book I'm writing, depends on the piece I'm writing. <laughs> I've written for a lot of secular um, magazines, and um, sometimes I feel a bit more freedom, if I'm honest, with writing for the secular than I do for um, the sacred world, um, because I think we hold so tightly to theology, and um, people can really get themselves into a sort of need to be right over having connection with each other. So... Um, And I think that's actually the case, especially with the kind of political warfare that's going on at the moment. So I think for me, I I like to just say that I'm that I'm an author who does have a faith. And um, because sometimes people can look look at me instantly and think, oh, she has a faith. so She's going to have an agenda. But I'm like, no, my faith, my faith is who I am. And it it dictates why I do and say and am the way that I am, you know, Um, but I would say that a lot of the reasons why I came back to faith was because of kindness, because of joy, because of gentleness, because of faithfulness, because of self-control. Like those things were actually honourable, noble things in, in that that I saw in both atheists and in in Christians. But I, for me, I needed the motivation behind why we did those things, and that was my faith. Well, as you've documented, you're in your second half of your thirties, and you're single. Dun, dun, so how, dun. how often do people try and set you up? Oh. Um, I normally have at least once a day someone come up to me and say, I had a dream about you in a wedding dress, um, <laughs> to which I go, was there a husband in that? In that, Or is it just me in a wedding dress? Oh. <laughs> um, is, did you see what he looked like? No, I didn't see what he looked like. Oh, that's a shame. Um, and then there are times where, you know, people go, oh, you're single. And then they'll get their phone out and they'll show you a guy and they'll tell you that he, you know, he's learned Romans off by heart and then he goes to CrossFit, like those kind of things. But, um, yeah, I think people always try to, um, I'm, I normally kind of preface it with, okay, well, it needs to be more than a man with a pulse and someone that says he loves Jesus. There is a, there's a little bit more to it than that. Um, but I'm, of course, at the moment, I'm sort of surrounded by a lot of guys who are in their 20s. I'm not, I'm not, by the time most of the guys come up to Beth and they do, uh, they do school, they, they're pretty much married by the time they're 30. So basically, the aim of the game is to travel a little bit more than I am, so then I have um, <laughs> more space um, to be able to meet potentials. Unless you've got someone in mind, Mark. No, I, 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 um, 
And just for people listening in this program, I'm old enough to be your father. So yes. Just so, just so people are wondering why I'm asking. That wasn't an agenda. That was a very <laughs> it was a fatherly question. <laughs> so so when you see when you see your mate down the road, yeah. What does he what does he look like? I'm sure you've put a lot of thought into this. You, oh, absolutely. Most, most women do. He basically looks like Chris Pine. No, I'm joking. Um, he. <laughs> Or Jared Leto, one of the two. One I've heard the of the Jared two. Leto reference from you more than once. So. Oh, at least a thousand times a day. I just like to declare him into my life, slowly but surely. Um, <laughs> I, I don't. My girlfriend say, "What do you think he's going to look like?" And I'm like, "I don't know what he's going to look like, but I do know how he's going to feel." And they're like, "What do you mean?" And I'm like, "I don't mean that as in a physical way. I mean as in how he'll feel. Like he'll be very still and joyful and kind." You know, and there there have been people that have tried to set me up with those kind of guys, and um, and I remember my boss once turning to me and he said, "I found a lovely guy. He's tall. He's uh, they always start that off. He's tall, and um, uh, he's he he's going to treat you real nice. He's going to take you to restaurants. He's just uh, he's just a very kind man." And then I'll go, uh, "Yeah, his di- you haven't said if he's attractive." For, for me and I go is he attractive and then he'll just smile and then I'll go you see here's the deal it can't be an absolute breeze to the wedding night there needs to be some tension some battle on the purity field um, because I will have to one day want to procreate with him so it is kind of important that I find them sexually attractive um, especially having waited for that long are you still there have you gone <laughs> Are you just appalled by what I'm sharing? Right no, I, I feel like I shouldn't be listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, but anyway. But um, I was also thinking about the Jared Leto reference. I'm competing with Javier Bardem, so I... I oh, of course you are. Yeah. Of course you are. <laughs> yes. So, so, do you think you, you, think you intimidate men? Um, it depends who you talk to. It depends who you talk to. A lot of, the, uh, you know... A lot of my male friends will go, oh, yeah, I can see why guys would be intimidated by you. You've, you've done a lot in your life. You've, you know, you take care of yourself. You don't need huge amounts from a guy. Um, but also, um, hi, I, you don't intimidate me. So I think, people, I think people can see why that's the case. But normally anyone that knows me just isn't, you know, and they know that, um, they know that I'm, I love them and I'm a lot softer around the edges than I used to be. I think during my 20s and my early 30s, I was quite sharp around the edges because I was so self-sufficient by that point. You know, losing a dad at a young age, it really does make you pretty self-protective. Um, and then you kind of get into this world of not trusting people and uh, having to defend yourself. And um, before you know it, you feel constantly misunderstood and you don't realize that actually some of that is down to you and how you come across, and that your fear is actually palpable, you can actually feel it. Um, So I had to work on that a lot. I would say these days, um, because, you know, we have a heart to be powerful and not to be victim-like, but also to be soft and tender and kind to other people, I think that's really... There's a a happy balance. So I'd probably say powerful and tender all at the same... in the same moment, but, um, you know, my my fathers in my life and people that love me... um, I don't know. I would just say that they're very good at, at, at you know, there's just, it's just going to take a guy to not be intimidated by me, a real man, you know. That sounds so really harsh. Made, so if you've made it this far, 
you should know you're listening to the Carry On podcast with Carrie Lloyd. So what what's the plan for this thing? What what, what are you going to be talking about? Well, it's a great question, Mark. I actually don't know. I think <laughs> I think we're. I think I one of the things that I do love. I do have really brilliant friends and people in my life, and um, I really appreciate it when um, there are people that that I they're just really interesting characters so one of the reasons one, one of the reasons why I wanted to do this was actually to talk about talk with them publicly about the stuff that we talk about behind closed doors and things that we stay up talking about until the late hours of the eve- evening and um and just kind of to bring I get lots of people contacting me to talk about certain things but I actually don't have much space or time to write the articles for it so it just seemed to make sense to actually do this on podcast um and it's quicker to do than an article and it was also just a great way of just starting to interact with people. I know that this is the, this is the age of the podcast, so it just seemed to make sense that if, if I'm having these conversations about how, how we can better ourselves as people, then really it should be on a podcast. So it's interesting. So when I, when I started my career, I started in the newspapers and then realized that if I went into radio, I wouldn't need an editor. I can just flip a microphone on and I can just talk. And Which must terrify people. It, <laughs> I didn't have to worry about my articles getting dissected. Right. So you've done you've done both. So do you enjoy speaking, not just on a podcast, but in front of an audience more than you enjoy writing, or is it just two very different experiences that complement one another? It's. Other? I would say it's two different experiences that complement each other. I love speaking because I've. I mean, back in the day, I used to be. Um, acting in plays and I saw so there's nothing better than a live studio audience if that makes sense and um, and I feel that you you get to feel when you're imparting something into a room be it teaching or ministering or speaking you get to feel what's going on you get to see the direct impact of what the Lord is doing in the room so I can't see that when I'm writing um, and yet there are other times where you just want to sort of my writing is sometimes my secret place and my co-laboring with the Lord my co-creation that I get to do with him so there's something about those two together um one is really for a contemplative moment and others is really to interact and be with people. Um, I have no desire to hide behind a screen for the rest of my life, you know. So it's really, speaking is very important to me, I think. What's one thing that people don't know about you that you wish they did? Oh, gosh. Um, that I once won the Friends Perseverance Award. Uh, when I was when I was nine, I won a trophy uh, for the girl that had persevered the most in my year. It was probably the most the high highlight of my life so far was to win a what cup. Had, what, what had what had you persevered at the age of nine? I think generally just my ability to tap dance and um, mathematics was a poor area, and yet I had stretched and worked hard uh, to do better in my journey. So. Um, I think I was always pretty good at exponential growth from a very young age. Um, and it's so funny because I'll see people, you know, that I've known people for, I don't know, 10, 12, 15 years. And the last six years, I would say I've grown the most, but, um, they won't get to experience that just in like a one, one off sitting. I would say that when people do life with me, I've got friends who have been friends with me before I came to Bethel, obviously, and they'll tell me about the fact that they feel like, and this isn't me bragging, this is just because I worked really hard at this, 
they'll go, you were one of our friends that were kind of a little bit rollercoastery in regards to emotional health. And now we would say that you're probably one of my, my, my most emotionally healthy friends. And so if it can happen to me, it can happen to anyone, quite frankly. And I think it just takes a bit of determination, perseverance and a really good team around you um, that believes in who you are more than you do. Now, it probably won't be that much longer before you leave the comfy confines of Bethel. What's going to be the hardest part of that? Um, I think, I mean, this is, I've never known leaders and, and people like it. I've never, I've never had bosses that have believed in me so much. I was having a conversation with my boss the other day and he's like, you know, I had a three year plan with you and I'm starting to see that, that investment that we've made into you come out in this year, um, on different levels and, and I'm like, what do you think it was that you really wanted to grow? I mean, he said, I think your insecurity at the beginning and just how you were and just how it has changed now. So um, having people that just had a plan for you to build you, I mean, they really are the best builders. Um, and I've been on many leadership courses and workshops and, you know, motivational speakers and all this kind of thing. And nothing, nothing matches the stuff I've experienced on a day-to-day consistent believe in you um will be tolerant on your bad days and (laughs) and challenge you on your bad days and equally still love you in your most disappointing moments I think that's probably for me is the most phenomenal kind of leadership I've ever seen most leadership before this would would excommunicate you if you had failed or been disappointing and they would praise you if you were doing well, which just really encourages nothing but a performance behavior. So for me, what I experienced here was that I, I got to be completely myself, completely authentically in any manner I wanted to be, as well as it was very hard at first to be told, just be yourself. I'm like, I didn't know what that was. I was always used to being told how to be and how to act and how to um, just, just confirm, conform with the, with the rules of the, of the corporation, if that makes sense. So this, this place has just been very different. Um, and I've been so grateful for it, but I don't, I don't actually feel like any of that covering will go. I think, you know, these are my family, if anything. So, um, I'll always be based on some level here. This is kind of my, my spiritual base, if that makes sense. So you, do you think that once you leave, Bethel after you've been there for a few years that it's going to be a difficult adjustment because maybe some people look at you and say well she's been in this hermetically sealed bubble for the last few years how is she gonna how is she gonna live once she's out of that she doesn't have all that accountability and these pastors around her and all this teaching she's getting and what's it going to be like for you I mean the accountability will still be there because my accountability were not it wasn't down to my pay packet my accountability was down to my friends and family so I still have to have a lot of people speaking to my life because they're my friends. They're not, not because I'm doing a job for them. Um, so the accountability will still stay the same. And I think it's also up to me to make sure that I have a committee of people wherever I am, um, that I open myself up enough for feedback and constructive criticism and, and all that kind of thing. And at the same time, just have people that I really enjoy. I, I've always been speaking to... Um, the students here, one of the hardest things they find is transitioning back out of this kind of, they always say that it's a taste of heaven being at Bethel. And so I can understand why it's a hard transition. And yet at the same time, if you, if you do have a pure intimate relationship with the Lord, if you have not been defined by Bethel, but by your relationship with the Lord, then it really shouldn't be as much of a transition as it needs to be. 
um, I think if you if you steward it well and if you have a vision over your life outside of Bethel, outside of how people are, my job is to make me safe. It's not to make the rest of the world safe. And it's my job to how I respond to people rather than react to people. So if my circumstances are going to change, this is why I'm so obsessed with Daniel, I think, in the Bible, because he was certainly not in the, the kindest culture. In fact, he was serving some of the most ruthless people. And yet he he had some pretty solid... Um, routines that kind of kept him focused on his intimacy with the Lord. He prayed three times a day. Nothing that happened would ever change that. Um, and of course, I'm not as regimented and as routined as that. But if I need to be, I will. Um, I think a vision is the most important thing for me to have if I, if I do move out here. So um, I think for me, I have a vision to kind of feed back into Bethel once I do leave. So it's not a case of see ya. Thanks a lot, guys. Peace out. It's more actually, I, I really feel that it's, it's a bridging towards other things that, that Bethel does have stuff that could absolutely encourage, um, things going forward. So yeah, I think it's just being creative really. Well, I'm hoping that in the last half hour plus, people have gotten to know Carrie a little bit more. And uh, as she said, in future podcasts, she's going to be introducing you to some some pretty incredible people that have uh, been part of her life. And we'll continue to make that happen. And we'll have another one of these uh, Q&As as we uh, get to know. You, you certainly can't get to know Carrie in a half an hour, that's for sure. <laughs> so we'll, we'll, we'll work on that. <laughs> I'm not even sure Carrie knows Carrie. Yet. I don't think so, I do. This is why the questions you know. help. So this, it's like, wow, I'm pretty profound. How about that? <laughs> but Carrie, uh, thanks. And um, I want I want everybody to know that uh, it's going to be a regular thing. And uh, Carrie has a lot to share. And this has been a very limited format. But the uh, great thing about podcasts is you can do as many as you want until you've reached all the pinnacles of the places you want to you want to travel. So um, that's, that's the great thing about this whole podcast format. But uh, you've been listening to Carrie On with Carrie Light. Thanks for checking into the Carrie Lloyd podcast. Um, if you loved it, share it. Um, you can follow me on Instagram at Carrie Gracie, Facebook at uh, Carrie Lloyd, and Twitter at Carrie Gracie. Um, we do have a website which is CarrieLloyd.net. And if you have any questions of any sort, um, then you can just email me at Carrie at CarrieLloyd.net.